Well, it's great to be with you here on this July 4th weekend, and happy July 4th to you and those you love. We are remembering as our pledge to the flag at the very end of the pledge, it says, with liberty and justice for all. We are closing out our series we've called Generous Justice, where we're taking a look at God's version of social justice and how that works itself out in the real world. I want us to remember something that Davy Crockett did. Now, do you remember Davy Crockett from when you were a kid? Uh, I don't know if you remember this song. Davy, Davy Crockett. You can finish it. King of the wild frontier. You know, Davy was king of the wild frontier back in the 1800s. And it was in 1835, some 22, 23 years after his involvement in the War of 1812. That's right. You can do the math on that his involvement in the War of 1812, he said this about someone under whom he served in the army during the conflict, the War there of 1812. He said that, and I'm paraphrasing, he said that he participated in giving this military leader his victory on the field of battle, his glory on the field of battle, but felt that this leader had become too big for his breaches, and that's the way Davy Crockett put it, that this leader had become too big for his breeches, and it turns out this leader is Andrew Jackson. Davy Crockett served under Andrew Jackson's command in the War of 1812, and Andrew Jackson Jackson is preserved in American history as having been a hero of the War of 1812. But Davy Crockett identified something in Andrew Jackson's character that is of note historically, And that's that Davy Crockett felt that Jackson had become too big for his breeches. So Davy Crockett coined the phrase that we know now, too big for his breeches, too big for your breeches. What does that even mean? Too big for your breeches means that your image of yourself has become bigger than it actually is, than you actually are. You have kind of become a legend in your own mind, as it were. And Davy Crockett thought that of Andrew Jackson and coined that phrase. Well, we are studying in this fourth and final week of Generous Justice, uh, in depth, we are studying a verse from the book of Micah in the Old Testament. It's Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, where the question is asked, now what do we do before uh, a holy and perfect and generous God? And, uh, And the scripture replies that God has called us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Of course, we understand and have explored this throughout this series that Jesus Christ is the only person to ever have done those three things perfectly and continues to be the only person to ever have done those three things perfectly, act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with his God. And at the same time, we are called to follow Jesus. And so we're kind of called to copy Jesus in his behaviors and the way he does things And that is, of course, understanding that it's not our behavior that saves us uh, from hell and and from death and from sin, that it is the work of Jesus that accomplishes this. And and through faith, uh, we are given eternal life in Jesus Christ before the eyes of God, before the perfect, holy throne room of God. And at the same time, we're called to follow Jesus in his example so that other people may get to know this God that we've Uh, come to know and love and serve. And so we're focusing this week on what it means to walk humbly with God. And on one hand, you can take a look at that phrase and understand it from one point of view. And that is how we are to see ourselves from God's point of view. 
and walk humbly with our God in the way we see ourselves. In other words, not think of ourselves too big or not become too big for our own breaches, as it were, in the words of Davy Crockett. And another perspective is how we see other people uh, from God's point of view. You know, do we see other people from a humble point of view where we don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought? Well, we understand this, though, is that whether we see others or ourselves from God's point of view or not, we are separated from a holy, perfect God, and we stand apart from Him. In fact, it's probably more accurate to say that God stands apart from us in perfection and holiness, and it, his son, it is His Son, Jesus, who brings us together. So we have more in common with other people before the perfect and sinless and holy eyes of our Creator God uh, than we might expect. We are in the same spot uh, in, in the universe, theologically and otherwise, before a holy God separated from Him by sin and the power of, of sin and the work of the devil and the effects of death in our life. But it is Jesus who comes along and bridges that gap and that brings us close to the character and the nature of God. And, uh, and the way He does that is with utter and complete humility. Now, look at this scripture in Philippians chapter 2, if you're listening and in a position where you can see the scripture and get eyes on it, this is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. And the scripture says this, Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status. Let me say that again. Uh, he didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status. Uh, sort of privilege, if you will. Uh, no matter what, not at all, Jesus had to do that uh, or chose to do that. When the time came, the scripture goes on, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, uh, became human. And having become human, he stayed human, the scripture says. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. In fact, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death and the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. This, of course, is Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8 in the message version. We focus on the cross, that crucifixion that it refers to there in the end, where Jesus takes a humble approach to his saving of you and me. He takes a humble approach in the salvation of all humankind, where Jesus could have done things in a different way. And maybe you ask yourself, well, why would Jesus choose to allow himself to be crucified, to go to a cross for me and for other people. You know, it's the after effect, it's the realization of walking humbly with God that Jesus wants to demonstrate in the way he accomplishes the end goal of taking care of our sin. Now, it is a theological truth that there has to be a death in order to take care of sin in the eyes of God. So Jesus had to die. But Jesus didn't have to die in such a public and humiliating and painful, exhausting, exasperating way. Um, he could have gone super quick, but he chose to drag it out and to demonstrate his great love for all humanity by allowing it to take some time. And while on one hand he endured the cruelty of the cross and everything that comes with it, the shame, the humiliation, and all that, that terrible stuff that comes with it, he chose to do that in order to demonstrate God's great love for us. But one thing is true. Before Jesus found himself nailed to the cross, 
He was always walking. He was always going somewhere. It's kind of like that scene in Forrest Gump where they're describing a young Forrest Gump who was always running. And they put the hard G on the end of that, which I thought was really funny. Um, he was always running, Forrest Gump was, everywhere he went when he was a child. You know, it was similar with Jesus. When Jesus was, in, was involved in his ministry here on earth, he was always walking. He was always going somewhere. He was always taking the good news of the kingdom of God to someone who had never heard it before. And as he was doing that, he was collecting new followers and believers, new disciples. One of those was a woman by the name of Salome. Now, Salome is the wife of a man named Zebedee, who they are the parents of James and John. These guys were called by Jesus the sons of thunder, the Boanerges, uh, the sons of thunder. And we think they were called the sons of thunder because the two of these guys had some behavioral problems. In fact, uh, the thought is that they were very outspoken and brash toward people. They didn't have a lot of manners, and so they would get angry easily and just show themselves out at the drop of a hat. But what's interesting is Salome, the mother of James and John, who would become quite famous, of course, and have Bible books named after them and such, Salome did, uh, comes to Jesus and, and has a request. She humbles herself and, and sits at his feet and has a request, and he wants to, to ask, you know, ask what the request is without promising to grant it. She asks that they would sit at his right and, his, and in his left in his coming kingdom. Now, Salome probably believed that Jesus was there as a conquering military hero and that they, you know, had just not seen this side of him or something. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that James and John had the same request of Jesus and just brought their mom along, maybe to soften the deal up a little bit or soften the ask up a little bit. But the point is, is these Boanerges, these sons of thunder and their mom had a special request. They wanted not to walk with Jesus or to walk humbly with their God. They wanted to sit in judgment over the kingdom of Israel. They wanted to partner together with Jesus and sit in judgment as kings over Israel. And so that is their request is whenever Jesus's kingdom is going to come, they wanted to sit at his side on both sides of him and rule over the kingdom in authority with Jesus. They didn't want anything to do with walking anywhere humbly with anybody. They wanted to sit in the seat of authority over people. But Jesus corrects this idea both with them and with their mom and basically says this, it is not for me to grant a space beside me, a place beside me in the, you know, the rulership or the authority over the kingdom of God. That is for God himself to do. And in that moment, he demonstrated what utter and total humility, what utter and total humility uh, looks like in the kingdom of God, a very key feature of the kingdom of God. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 20, um, when the other disciples caught wind of what was going on with James and John and, and Salome. Um, Matthew 24, uh, Matthew 20, uh, verse 24 of chapter 20, I should say, says this, when the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. Now, what does indignant mean? It means that they were really ticked off, right? They were angry. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, the scripture says in the New Living Translation, it will be different. Now, what did Jesus mean by that? 
With you, it means that you will not lord authority over people in the kingdom of God. That Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, Jesus is over the kingdom of God. He is the one who rules over the kingdom, but he rules from underneath the people, pushing them up into the presence of God. Jesus humbles himself, even to death on a cross, sheds his blood so that you and I can rise up into the presence of God, be counted, be loved, and be received and accepted into the presence of a holy God. It is only because of Jesus that we're able to do this. This is very different from the way the world handles rulership and authority, isn't it? The world sees authority as something that is to be held over other people, perhaps for political influence or for gain in some way, shape, or form. But Jesus says, no, with you it will not be this way. It will be different. And as such, Jesus paints a vision for how servant leadership comes into the world, the idea that we lead by serving. This is exactly what Jesus is famous for. He's famous for leading by serving, by giving of himself even to the point of death on a cross. And when it comes to social justice and being just, practicing social justice with people, especially people with whom we have differences, maybe it's the color of our skin or the amount of money we make at work or whether or not we have work or what kind of job we have or a car we drive or what neighborhood township we live in. We have these differences among us. Jesus says with you, it will be different as you're experiencing those differences. You will act justly by the power of the Holy Spirit. You will love mercy or loving kindness, other translations say. And you will walk humbly with your God. And in those moments, you will be different. And the difference that is made will bear witness to Jesus's justice in the world, the kind that submits itself to the governing authority, the creative power, and the majesty of God, and as such lifts other people up with good news. And that is the good news that there is no authority higher in heaven and on earth than the God who made us, and the God who made us loves us so much that he sent his Son, who is the ruler he has chosen for the universe, to submit himself to the governing authorities and allow them to crucify him. And when that happens... Our sin in the eyes of God is paid for. Jesus pays for that sin debt. And when he does that, he opens up a new world of opportunities for us to serve others around us, including and especially, I would submit, people with whom we share differences. For in the presence of people with whom we have differences, God has called us to be different. And that difference is to submit ourselves in the name of Jesus for the purpose of lifting others up. So for us, translating this into social justice means that we are humble in heart, walking with God and participating in those things that would lift up people who are marginalized and disadvantaged for any number of reasons. No matter what the color of their skin, no matter what their job or their income or where they live, no matter where they came from or went. We are called to lift them up in the name of Christ. And doing this with God's help is truly the only way to participate in generous justice. So we're going to close now and just invite God to change our hearts in regards to how we work with and and deal with and interact with other people. I'd invite you to just close your eyes with me right now and just have some prayer time with me. And let's ask God to activate our lives in true social justice. Would you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for being generous toward us. I thank you for being generous toward me in the person of Jesus, your son, who came here and died willingly. He gave up his throne in heaven to come here into the dirt and into the blood and into the fray and to release me from it, to bring liberty into my life and freedom into my life and generous justice, the justice of God. And so when things are unequal, and I can identify them being unequal, when things are wrong, when things are against the very image of God uh, that you have put inside each one of us, who, who has a pulse and walks the face of this earth, um, God, just inspire in me the ability to be present there and to speak up for your creature. Whatever your creature uh, uh, might bring to the table socially, uh, really in the end doesn't matter because you have made them in your image and you've called us to be protectors of that image. Yet God, sometimes we confess that we drop the ball in that area and we just become complacent. Help us to be aware that as we walk humbly with you, that we will have opportunities to share the great power, majesty, and purity of our Creator God. For we are your creatures, and we were made with great love, and you do love us, and you do want us to follow your Son. Because ultimately, that is what's best for us and best for the world. This is how we're able to think of others and ourselves from your point of view, through the very work of Jesus. So God, we submit all these things to you and trust in your power and your mercy for them. It's in your name we pray, and together we say, amen and amen.